Today on Blue 58, all of the Packers' offseason activities from free agency to the draft and beyond seem to point pretty clearly towards a new offensive philosophy. But we haven't really taken the time to dive deep on what that philosophy is, whether embracing it is a good idea, or, most importantly, whether or not it can work. Let's fix that. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. A couple episodes back, our friend Mickle, one of our regular contributors in the world of questions, wrote in with a series of questions related to Jordan Love, Aaron Rodgers, and what it means, that selection rather, uh, what that means for the Packers' offense as a whole. We spoke about those questions on and off air, and he has since written back with a host of other ones. And rather than answering each of his questions, all of which were very good individually, I think we need to take a step back here. Because, as I said in the intro, I think everything that the Packers have been doing this offseason, and really since Matt LaFleur was hired, has them headed in a new direction on offense. And I think we need to take a second and embrace that idea or look into that idea more fully, what that offensive philosophy is and how their activities kind of line up with what that is. To do that, I think we need to start with why they're going in a new direction. And I need to turn to a couple ideas that have been bouncing around in my head recently. Courtesy of a couple of my favorite radio and podcasting guys. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know I'm a big fan of the king of podcasting, in my mind. King of the long-form podcasting. Dan Carlin. He runs Hardcore History, Hardcore History Addendum, Common Sense. You probably hear some influence of his work in the things that I do, for good or for ill. One of the things that he talks about in Common Sense, in Hardcore History, in his recent book, The End is Always Near, is the idea of never getting back to a peak. This came up a lot in a series he did on ancient Near Eastern kings, specifically the Persian Empire, and kind of as a result of that, Alexander the Great. When these societies, way back in the day, would fight against each other, if you got into a big battle and you lost, chances are that was it for your society. Your city-state A, you're fighting against city-state B, you roll out the troops one afternoon, You get hammered, and that might be it for city-state number A, letter A, whatever. Letters, numbers, they don't really matter. There's a good chance that if you lost, you were never coming back again. Or if you did come back, you were never going to get back to the peak of your society. And one thing that he consistently brings up, and I think we're seeing some evidence of this in in the current events right now, is that we shouldn't assume as a people that we are just going to constantly be on this upward slope, 
just kind of constantly going up forever. There is a point to this related to the Packers. Might take a second to get there, but there is a point there. We're not always going to be going up. In the tides of humanity, there are waves that roll in and waves that roll out. And sometimes you get lucky enough to be born on one of the societal upswings. And sometimes you are born during one of the backswings. Where you can look back and say, hey, look how great things used to be. I wish it would have been like that when I was alive. It's not guaranteed to anybody that if something bad comes along, that you're ever going to get back to where things were good again. And there are numerous examples about uh, concerning that throughout history. A personal favorite for me, just as a history fan, if I can talk about this, just as a, a, a nerd for this kind of stuff a little bit, in addition to my third football interest, uh, Xenophon was a Greek general who went and tried to help out this rebellion in what is now modern-day Iran or Iraq somewhere to the far east of where he was from. And when he got there, it turned out the war was basically over and the side he was going to support had lost. So he had to take all of his troops and try to get back to Greece without getting wiped out. And on their way back, they ended up camping outside this enormous abandoned city. It was from some long-lost society, probably the Assyrians, nobody really knows for sure. And they're asking the locals, what the heck is this thing? This isn't like anything we've ever seen. And all the locals are like, we don't know either. It's been here for as long as anybody can remember. Clearly, it came from somebody who is more advanced than we are, but we don't know how to do what they were doing. Maybe that's a, a situation we end up in society today. Anyway, that's a long way of saying getting back to a peak is never guaranteed to anyone. I was thinking about that this week because I was listening to a podcast featuring another one of my favorite podcast people, Ryan Rossillo. And he was talking with uh, another media person, Brian Curtis, about the state of the media today. And what he said reminded me of what Dan Carlin said, because he pointed out that a lot of jobs are being lost in the media right now. And to think that all those jobs are going to come back after this whole coronavirus thing goes away is foolish. Chances are, the media landscape, and I think this is true of a lot of industries, is not going to expand out back to where it was prior to the everything that's happening. So those two, two ideas sort of link together. We're in a situation where we might not see things bounce back to where they were, and that's something that's been happening all throughout history. So what happens if you realize that you're not going to get back to the peak where you were? Got to circle back to another Dan Carlin idea because something he brings up again and again is the idea of the soft landing from fill in the blank. The soft landing from a situation you were in before that you were transitioning out of. He brings it up a lot in reference to countries that were transitioning out of the Soviet Union. Have a soft landing from, I don't know, what do you call that? Dictatorial communism trying to get out of the situation you were in and into something new. And you can apply that idea of a soft landing to a lot of different scenarios. For instance, the Packers knew for a long time that Brett Favre was going to retire someday. They knew that because he told them again and again and again, hey, I'm going to retire someday and it's probably going to be sooner than later. 
So what do they do in 2005? They draft Aaron Rodgers, thereby, at least hopefully, insulating themselves against the departure of Brett Favre, giving themselves a soft landing from the Brett Favre era. As it turned out, that was the Aaron Rodgers era. And we're in another situation now where the Packers seem to be preparing for another soft landing. But it's not just a soft landing from Aaron Rodgers. It's a soft landing from Peak Rodgers. I think a lot of us, as fans, as people who cover the Packers, have been hoping for this return to Peak Aaron Rodgers a player we probably last saw in 2014. And it's become abundantly clear that no matter how good you still think Aaron Rodgers is, that getting back to peak Rodgers probably isn't going to be a thing that happens. That's not to say there aren't glimpses of still all-time great Aaron Rodgers. That's not to say he's not still very good. But the Packers, to me at least philosophically, to bring this all together now, have realized that they are never getting back to the peak that they had previously achieved with Aaron Rodgers. So they are preparing for a soft landing both from Aaron Rodgers, the demigod, best quarterback in the known universe version of himself, and from Aaron Rodgers just in general. What evidence do we have for this? I think there are at least four things here. First, they hired a play-action passing coach. Matt LaFleur's whole deal is the Shanahan tree wide zone play-action scheme. A scheme that does not require the quarterback, at least in theory, to throw 35 to 50 times a game, like Mike McCarthy's offense often did. Like the hyper-passing oriented offense around the league do. Basically, you're trying to make it easy and simple for your quarterback so that he doesn't have to try to do everything, that he doesn't necessarily have to execute at an ultra, ultra high level to be successful because the offense as a whole is going to make it easy for him. That's the idea, at least. Secondly, you see the Packers engaging in what I think we can conservatively call a run-focused draft. They draft fullback AJ, or fullback, excuse me, running back A.J. Dillon in the second round. What amounts to a fullback in Josiah DeGara in the third, and a bunch of interior offensive linemen late, both because they're going to need them with Corey Lindsley's contract in question and Billy Turner just being Billy Turner, and because you need a lot of offensive linemen, a lot of good ones to make this scheme go. Then you've got the consistent negligence towards wide receivers. The Packers have not gone out of their way to add a lot of talent to the wide receiver room over the past couple of years. Whether you think they need them or not is immaterial. The fact is they just haven't. Whether that's because they think they need them or not is an entirely different question. But again, the fact remains the Packers just haven't added a lot of receivers over the past couple of years. And finally, the fourth and I think ultimate piece of evidence here that the Packers are preparing for a soft landing from the Rodgers era is that they have drafted his successor at quarterback. And I've said this before. And I will say it again here. Until proven otherwise, no matter what Brian Gutekunst says, Jordan Love is the successor to Aaron Rodgers. 
I think we can all agree on that. You don't spend a first-round quarterback on a guy that you hope to trade one day for what? Uh, Another first-round pick? Multiple first-round picks? That's not a plan that's a wish. Because how are you going to prove that he's good enough to get a return on your investment at least comparable to what you put into him unless he gets extended playing time? At best, you're probably going to be settling for the Jimmy Garoppolo package, a second-round pick. And then I think maybe a a couple other considerations. But is that what you're looking for, for drafting a guy 26th overall, trading up to get him? You're going to have to get a lot of draft capital back in return if you're looking at that as a developmental prospect. And you're not taking him to just be a backup, nice as it might be to have a backup quarterback who's competent, which is something the Packers have not had in a while. So it looks like the Packers are at least preparing for that sort of soft landing, at least insulating themselves from the decline of Aaron Rodgers and ultimately moving on from Aaron Rodgers. So how does this all work? You're doing this. This is the philosophy you want. How does this work? I think the 49ers give us some guidance here. They showed us firsthand a couple times what it looks like when you've got a scheme like this that is working at every level. Ultimately, it relies on running the ball consistently and effectively and putting your position, your quarterback in a position where he doesn't have to make plays. He just has to execute. And as the Packers so competently showed, if you allow the team to get the run game going, you don't even need your quarterback to win games. Jimmy Garoppolo basically had the NFC Championship game off. In sort of a weird way, I think the Ravens also show how this can work if your run-oriented philosophy pans out. Because, as they've shown, I think, in the Lamar Jackson era in Baltimore, football isn't necessarily about finding a scheme so much as creating and maximizing mismatches. In other words, we're not going to just run plays because we think they're good plays, but we're going to choose plays that give the players that we have the best chance of success. And that's something that I think we criticize Mike McCarthy for consistently over the last however many years in Green Bay. He seemed to be more about running the plays than putting the players he had in the best position for success. So with what the Packers have done to their roster, is it possible that this is going to work? How is it going to work in Green Bay? I think you have to look at a couple different personnel groupings as as real clues to how the Packers seem to think this is going to work. And that comes down to 22 and 21 personnel. This is something that our friend Mikkel asked about in his series of follow-up questions. 22 and 21 personnel... I think have become more commonly understood. I guess the the numbered personnel groupings have become more commonly understood in in football parlance. But in in case you don't know, here's how it works. Personnel groupings always refer to the five non-quarterback skill positions that are on the field. So you've got to have 11 players on offense. I don't suppose you have to, but if you you really want to try to run your offense effectively, you need 11 people out there. You don't want to do it with 10 or 9 or 6 or whatever. 11 people on the field. You got to have five offensive linemen. You're going to have a quarterback that leaves you five guys left to make up your different personnel groupings. And you kind of look at it as a series of three numbers and you forget about the last one. So 22 personnel refers to two backs and two tight ends. And then therefore you would have one ride receiver. The same goes for 21 personnel. You have two backs and one tight end. The Packers 
under Mike McCarthy famously ran most of their plays out of 11 personnel, one running back, one tight end, three wide receivers. So 22, I think, and 21 personnel kind of become the de facto personnel groupings for the Packers as they've made these decisions that have set themselves up philosophically or they've set themselves up for philosophically over the past couple of years. So I will actually quote one of Mickle's questions here because it plays into this idea. Mickle asks, isn't A.J. Dillon quite a nice addition if he can actually both catch and run? You think the Packers could force eight-man boxes in 21 or 22 personnel with Dillon or Aaron Jones? And then audible A.J. Uh, Jay Sternberger and Josiah Degara to receiving positions or use Dillon in a receiving position for favorable matchups? The short answer is yes. The long answer is this again is going to be about creating matchups favorably with your offensive scheme. So let's look at some broad advantages here to these personnel groupings. With either two backs and one tight end or two backs and two tight ends, you get some some really obvious advantages. You get size for one. If you've got two tight ends out there, chances are the defense is going to have to counter with a linebacker heavy alignment. Because if they just run out there with six or seven defensive backs, you're going to bulldoze right over them. This is especially true if you have versatile tight ends because you can line up with de facto wide receivers out there and force linebackers to cover faster, more agile tight ends. And that's a good matchup for just about any offense. So say you go out there with two backs and two tight ends, either two running backs or a a running back and a full back. And suddenly you can motion either that fullback or a tight end playing fullback out into the slot, say a Jay Sternberger or a Josiah DeGara. Suddenly you have a traditional tight end on the field, a normal wide receiver, and then another tight end who's playing like a wide receiver who could get matched up against a linebacker or a cornerback, which gives you matchup advantages in either situation. The disadvantage here is speed, usually. Generally, your bigger players are going to be a little bit slower. The Packers could also just be making an overall philosophical shift towards size. Whether that's 21 personnel, 22 personnel, or just having their giant wide receivers out on the field. This is something that I've talked about for a while now, and it really kind of jumped into my mind in the, the 2018 Super Bowl with the Patriots and the Rams. The Patriots beat up on the Rams just by going big all the time and kind of bullying the Rams around on the field. And the Packers might be headed that direction. Their big wide receiver certainly points you that way. They also look towards these big slot tight ends like we talked about. Even Josiah DeGara, if he's a little bit undersized for a tight end, he's still big for a cornerback to cover. So it's easy to picture a situation like this. Say you're in 22 personnel or 21 personnel, just for example, and instead of putting a running back and a fullback on the field together, you put A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones on the field together, uh, like, like Mickle referred to. Then you've got Mercedes Lewis as your traditional tight end and Devontae Adams and Devin Funches at wide receiver. There's a ton of different ways to create some mismatches here. For instance, you leave A.J. Dillon in the backfield as a running back and you motion Aaron Jones out as a wide receiver. Suddenly you've got three wide receivers out there, effectively, but still a running back who can make you pay in the backfield. What do you do if you're a defense there? 
if you just line up in a normal alignment with both Jones and Dylan in the backfield together, you can have Dylan block. For Jones, you can just leave Devin Funches out there in space against presumably a smaller cornerback with nobody around him since the rest of the alignment is pretty packed together. There's a lot of advantages. There's a lot of ways to take advantage of the size that you have on the field. Or say that you put Jay Sternberger out there as the lone tight end, line him up in the slot, and then do what we were talking about, motioning Aaron Jones out of the backfield. Suddenly, now you've got four effective wide receivers on the field and still A.J. Dillon in the backfield. If the defense tries to still pack the box, you just pick your matchup on the outside. I like my chances with Devontae Adams probably working one-on-one against a a cornerback out there. Or Aaron Jones working against the linebacker. But if the defense tries to cover, then you just hammer away with A.J. Dillon. You also have a lot of sub-package options here too. A back and two tight ends, a back and one tight end, the 11 personnel that we talked about. Devontae Adams, Devin Funches, Alan Lazard all together in a personnel grouping. Adams, Funches, and Marquez Valdez-Scantling, if you want to throw a little speed out there. So there's a lot of different ways that this, in theory, could work. But there's also some ways that if you're going about this philosophical shift, that it could not work out for you. And I think this is where I kind of get hung up on some stuff. First and foremost, the Packers are still banking on their young receivers developing. We haven't talked about Reggie Bagleton a ton, or at all, really, and I would like to get to that at some point. But other than him and Devin Funches, the Packers really haven't added anything to their receiver room, something we've pointed out. And they're still banking, therefore, on some improvement from guys that either didn't play a whole lot last year in Jake Kumaro or MVS, or guys who played a lot at the start in Valdez Scantling, but then faded away down the stretch, or somebody who didn't really play at all last year in Equinemius St. Brown, bouncing back from injury. Those are all big and I think fair questions for the Packers. I think there's also a bit of a problem with the Packers maybe spending resources in overall the wrong spots. A.J. Dillon and Josiah DeGara are guys that I'm big fans of. I like them both as players, but the Packers spent a lot of capital to bring both of those guys in. won't belabor that point because that's something that we've gone over before, but even if you are trying to go this direction, the Packers still spent a lot of money, a lot of money, a lot of capital in the draft on positions that they theoretically could have filled a lot later. There's also the idea that you may just be focusing on the run too much. Yes, we have seen this run-focused offense work elsewhere around the league. I mentioned the 49ers. I mentioned the Ravens, though they're, they're schematically a little bit different from what we're talking about here, though I did use them as an example. The Tennessee Titans also had a lot of success running the ball last year. But even if there's no hard and fast number on how much running is too much, whenever you do run the ball, you're taking away a play from the passing game that chances are is going to be more efficient. It's not that running is bad, it's that passing tends to produce better returns overall. And there is some sort of symbiotic relationship there, yeah, I agree. But running the ball takes away options for passing the ball. And passing the ball 
as has been shown throughout the league, is the most effective way to move the ball, the most effective way to score points, and the most effective way to maximize a lot of your personnel. So there's a chance the Packers, in their attempt to create a soft landing from Aaron Rodgers, just kind of put themselves outside the scope of what's really working well across the league. And finally, maybe it just turns out that none of these pieces fit together. That's not a very sexy answer, is it? But the Packers are trying to go through this personnel shift, this philosophical shift. Maybe it just doesn't work. Maybe you don't have the coach to pull this off or the people to pull this off. Maybe you should have just stuck with trying to maximize what was going well before. Because even in 2018, the Packers still produced a fair amount of explosive plays. They still scored quite a few points. In fact, a lot of their numbers were better in the last year of Mike McCarthy than they were in the first year of Matt LaFleur, the guy who was supposedly going to come in and make over their offense. Maybe it just doesn't work as you're trying to shift this direction. Or maybe... The linchpin in your entire plan here, Jordan Love, turns out to be a bust. Without saying anything about Love himself, quarterbacks in the first round have a pretty high bust rate. Maybe it just turns out to have not been an entirely great idea to spend one of your last first round picks of the Aaron Rodgers era on a position that isn't going to help you in the short term. And that turns out to be a bust long-term. I think there are a fair amount of questions here, as I think I've laid out. I think there is a chance that this could work. There is evidence that this whole shift can work. And I think it all comes back to what the Packers are trying to do. I think they are trying to go for that soft landing from the peak of one of the greatest players ever. Maybe they should have started trying to do this a lot earlier, making it easier for Aaron Rodgers. And that could have taken a lot of different forms. This is the form they're trying to put it in now. And hopefully we get a chance to see how it works this fall. That's all I've got for you in this episode. I do appreciate you listening in. Next episode, we're going to take another look at Take Your Eye Off the Ball by Pat Kerwin. We're up to Chapter 5, so if you are reading along with us on that one, uh, we will dive in there. We're also going to be talking about some potential contract extensions for the Packers next offseason or this offseason and then into next offseason, as well as where a few Packers players have ended up in their post-Packers playing careers because that kind of factors into where the Packers are right now. But for right now, if you like what you heard on this episode, I would appreciate it very much if you would share it with someone you think could benefit from it because that's how we keep this conversation going around the Packers and ultimately how we help everybody become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we're all trying to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.